Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael, okay, Michael this Waits. is Michael Waits with ATP Stories. I'm here with Robert Lumnitz of the Bangkok Venture Club. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm well, Michael. How are you? I'm, I'm awesome. Look, I've actually wanted to do this for such a long time. I'm really glad we've actually kind of connected and taken the time to, to get together to do this. And I, I thought it was funny, what was it, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when we met um, in Jason's office kind of accidentally. But it was a good setup for the rest of this, I think. No, absolutely, and uh, it shows that at the moment it's uh, still a relatively small world in the in the tech startup community here. Yeah, and that's kind of really what I want to talk about. I mean, there's so much ground to cover. Um, we could do a whole bunch of introductory stuff, but maybe just first say like how long you've been in Asia, and then we just I really just want to jump into this Bangkok venture thing because I think it's a huge opportunity, and I really want to find out more about it. Yeah, sure, sure, Michael. Well, I've I've been doing uh, business sporadically in the Asian markets for the last twenty or twenty five years. That's what I thought. Um, okay. But I moved I, I moved here full time um, two years ago, and that that that's really uh, probably the most relevant period to discuss. Um, and it's when I really started immersing myself into into this market. Right. So what's your, I mean, let's just start with what's your view on sort of the venture and the startup market in Thailand in particular and in Southeast Asia in general? Um, I think that it is, uh, obviously, it's very nascent, right. uh, Michael. Uh, we're, still, we're still at a very early uh, stage of the whole ecosystem's development. Uh, but that being said, I've seen a tremendous amount of acceleration over the last uh, 24 months that I've been in the market uh, in terms of both quality uh, deal flow and, and you know, really good entrepreneurs who are setting up what I believe to be viable businesses in the market, which can be competitive, um, and also access to capital and general, general interest in supporting entrepreneurial activity and startup development. Yeah, so what do you think? I mean, if you say 24 months, right, let's just go back to 2015. You arrive here, you start taking a look at the ecosystem. And to be fair, there's not much of a venture capital business in Thailand per se, right? So how do you organize Correct. that? How do you organize that? How do you go out and find those people that will become potential investors with you? And then how do you go out and source that deal flow as well? I can talk about what I do, but I'm really curious what you're seeing from your perspective. Well, I think, you know, if you look at 2015 when I arrived, um, really the only players in the game uh, were the uh, mobile network operators who had set up uh, incubators, uh, True, DTAC, uh, AIS. They, they had all already set up sort of small, almost corporate venturing incubation type uh, activity. So that was, you know, that was one of the primary... Uh, sources of, of at least funding for uh, early stage interesting businesses. Uh, you're right, there wasn't a lot of venture capital. Uh, 500 Tuk Tuks was just sort of launching. Uh, the other uh, corporate venturing entities, which you now see in the market, who have really uh, stimulated a lot of the, uh, of the growth and the acceleration of, of uh, the development here, um, like uh, uh, Siam Commercial Bank with their digital ventures operation and Ananda now and uh, the SCG with ad ventures. I mean, there's a lot of activity on the corporate uh, venturing side. But you're right, there hasn't been a lot of 
uh, pure independent venture capital. Uh, and that's why I really got uh, involved with and was very fortunate to meet the guys at uh, Bangkok Venture Club because the way it all starts is with uh, angels and with people who are, uh, you know, who have perhaps had some success themselves in the market and want to give something back to that next generation of entrepreneur. So I think the, the, the Bangkok Venture Club and some of the other angel networks that have been uh, growing over the last few years um, have also been very critical in supporting uh, the growth of, uh, you know, the ability for young companies to raise money and grow their businesses here. So that's, you make a really great point, actually, and I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. The only real way to begin sort of seed and angel-style investing, <clears throat> excuse me, is to get people who've already made a little bit of money in the market and then have them sort of repurpose that money back in and recycle it back into the market. Can you, just for me, can you characterize kind of the members of the Bangkok Venture Club and what, you know, what their view is on angel investing and how they kind of see that developing over the next couple of years? Well, I think, you know, let's just elaborate a little bit on the point you just made. I think that, I think that in most markets, given the risk of early stage investment, right. most, most initial early stage investment is driven by passion and by motives other than perhaps pure financial gain, all right? And that's where the angels come into it because these guys are giving back as a sense of uh, obligation to the community and they're also investing in businesses which they understand and which they're uh, maybe particularly passionate about. Um, but ultimately what that, what that leads to uh, is an interest in early stage investment as an asset allocation and as a more financial investment rather than an investment driven by, uh, by passion, all right? And I think that's what you're slowly seeing now uh, with the launch of more independent uh, venture capital products, which are open to all investors and not just through uh, corporate venturing or family office type scenarios, which has been much more the case uh, to date. So how do you see how do you see this continuing to develop? Right, I think you make a really good point. Actually, whether it's you know digital ventures run by <clears throat> SC, SCB, the Ananda thing you talked about, SCG's venture capital business as well, and like you said, you know True and Cube does some things. All these sort of corporate venture businesses are interesting, but how is that going to be different from what angel investors are doing and from what um, you know the Bangkok Venture Club is is doing as well? Well, I think I think the major difference is the, the, the one I just made. You know, if you want, if you're a, um, a a high net worth individual or an investor who wants a pure play allocation to a portfolio of early stage tech or other early stage high growth businesses, you can't really get that through a corporate venturing unit. Not really. Right? Yeah. And. And corporate venturing units have their own ulterior motives of investing in businesses that are strategic and not perhaps wanting uh, liquidity events for, that business, for those businesses, but are looking more for um, disruptive or complementary technology to core businesses that they already have. So it's a very different animal. You know, I think it's a very, very necessary part of an overall ecosystem. But... Um, you know, it, it's not quite the same thing as a pure play, independently run venture capital fund 
with a with a more standard GPLP or investment company structure, and you're seeing more of that in the market right now. I mean, uh, Bangkok Venture Club is launching its own uh, micro VC fund at the moment, uh, which is an angel-led uh, investment proposition. I know that there's another extremely credible group in the market right now, K2 Ventures, uh, which is which is raising money. Um, on a sort of more LP uh, LP basis to give people direct exposure to a portfolio of of growth companies. So I think you're slowly seeing this seg away from people making early stage investments and taking on risk for strategic corporate, passionate, uh, social, philanthropic reasons. Uh, to, to Thai investors and other investors really seeing this um, as an opportunity for asset allocation in their in their personal in their personal wealth portfolio. Right. So K two is actually a really good example of what I like to think of as a hybrid structure. Right. So K two, if you sit down and you talk talk to Stanley and his team, what you'll find out is sort of the background is that Loxley actually, which is a corporation that's based in Thailand, right, that does a lot of sort of back-end technology infrastructure stuff, ends up supporting them quite strongly. And it means that from a tech perspective and from a due diligence perspective, they have a really strong background in being able to sort of analyze deep tech and textile companies. But but in the end, they're not really so separate from, in a way, they're hybrid, right? So they're not so separate from what SCG is doing. But for my money, what it looks like what you're doing is getting an accumulation of angels together. And while they do have you know, kind of family money behind them because that's sort of the, the genesis of an angel anyway. Um, it's a much more different, almost a pure LPGP structure, it seems to me, right? So even the even the K2 is sort of a hybrid in the middle. But what, you're, what you guys are doing, I think, needs to get done more, right? So there need to be more funds, whether they're micro funds or larger funds to invest in businesses. And will you just do Thailand or will you do the rest of the region as well? Well, we're, we're the, the fund and the focus of the club is primarily on Thailand, Got right? It. Um, so, but but because of our membership in a, in, a, in an organization called the ASEAN Angel, Angel Alliance, um, we have access to both deal flow and mentors uh, from other ASEAN countries. So, about thirty to forty percent of the fund will be invested in non. Uh, in non-Thai businesses, and I think that you know, I think again strategically, I think that makes sense. All right, I think there are, I think there are opportunities to deploy capital regionally that are interesting, both on a case-by-case basis, uh, but also if you're trying to build a portfolio, Michael, uh, being able to invest in similar or complementary businesses in different parts of ASEAN. Um, I think is uh, is an interesting part of uh, building the portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. When I look at things from a portfolio optimization standpoint, right, whether you invest in a core business that's in Thailand, from a growth perspective, you're going to want to grow that out into the rest of the region, whether it's just Southeast Asia or all of ASEAN. I think it, it's the perfect way to do it, which is why I do agree with you. I think whether you're allocating 30 to 40% of that to invest in businesses, whether it's in Indonesia and in Malaysia and Vietnam or even in the Philippines, What's going to end up happening, hopefully, to those businesses, either they'll roll up into businesses that are in other countries or they'll just grow big enough on their own into the rest of the region. And from a portfolio perspective, there's probably no better way to do that, yeah? Uh, uh, Absolutely. Because ultimately, in terms of return, uh, 
it's it's I'm relatively indifferent as to whether we're the acquirer or the acquiree at the end of the day, as long as I can provide some liquidity for my investors. Right. Now, you've been in, I just want to back up a little bit so people can understand, right? You, you spend time talking about building a portfolio. So you've been in the investing business forever, yeah? Uh, I think forever is slightly um, exaggerated and makes me feel a little bit old. Um, but, I, you know, I started investing in emerging and frontier markets back in the very early uh, 90s. When um, you know the Russian markets went through a tremendous amount of uh, political, social, economic, and other uh, change, so I've been doing this for quite a while. And in 2005, I set up a formal asset management business in the UK um, to manage institutional money that was looking for uh, emerging market exposure. And was that on a P basis, or was that on a listed equity and a fixed income basis as well? No, th these were all um, direct investment, private equity propositions. Okay, but that's not not all of them tech focused, Michael. We we ran real estate funds, we ran buyout funds, but all of them were emerging and frontier market uh, focused: Russia, India, uh, Middle East, North Africa, etc. Right, but but I guess again, from my perspective, what that means, whether it's listed or even PEP, is actually better for me because that means that you have all of the embedded experience necessary to go out and analyze companies at sort of the earliest stage, their middle stage, and their growth stage. Right, that's a classic what classic private equity does, and it's perfect. It's a perfect setup for you actually then to come into the region and take all of that asset management experience that you have building a portfolio, understanding a portfolio optimization, and looking at individual businesses as well, and then transferring that experience into the venture capital business, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And that, that's one of the reasons I came, uh, you know, I came out to this market because I think it's a very exciting, uh, a very exciting time out <laughs> here. Um, but on the other hand, it's all very, it's all very new. Uh, and I'm sure there are certain things that uh, I can contribute, having seen similar uh, changes and managing uh, investment through uh, times of change in other markets. Uh, but I would hesitate to point out that one of the very first things you learn working in emerging markets is that local knowledge and local experience, uh, you know, there is no substitute for that, Michael. Absolutely. Uh, which is why I'm... You know, which is why I'm incredibly fortunate to have some really, really good um, Thai partners, uh, without whom it would be impossible to manage a product like this or, or or engage in a proposition like Bangkok Venture Club. Yes. So, do you, again without naming names, right? Because I don't think that's actually necessary. But can you ca characterize the types of people that you've been able to sort of connect with and work with? I mean, just in a little bit more detail than just sort of high net worth individuals. Like, what is their background? What are they going to bring to the table with you as well? And how does that combination, you know, give you an edge? Well, well one of the really great things, and, and a lot of this is attributable to my, my partners, the founders, the founders of the Bangkok Venture Club, but the Bangkok Venture Club is an incredible um, uh, proposition, Michael. It, it, it is a very all-inclusive uh, group of individuals, uh, not all of whom are angel investors, but all of whom really want to support the development of entrepreneurial culture, 
and support young entrepreneurs in growing interesting companies here in Thailand. So we, we don't just have high net worth individuals who are looking to invest. We have representatives of a lot of large corporates here in Thailand who simply come because they're interested in what's going on in the in the startup community, and they're always looking for businesses that might be either complementary to or potentially disruptive to uh, their own businesses. So they're there just to, to get a sense of what's going on in the market. We have representatives from almost all of Thai academia who are also interested uh, for their own uh, pedagogical reasons. We have government officials, you know, we have foreigners who are visiting and just checking out the scene. So it's really a group of, of individuals who have all sorts of different skill sets and who can contribute both financial, intellectual, human, and other capital to these uh, young entrepreneurs' businesses, uh, all together in a room uh, six times a year looking at uh, promising young businesses. So, that you know... I have exposure, thankfully, through the club to, you know, most of the people who are stakeholders in and contributing to the development of this, uh, of this ecosystem. So, so what do you do now, right? So now that you have this really incredible accumulation of people, are, are you in the process of going out and raising money for the, for the Bangkok Venture Club Fund? Yes, um, I mean we're we're well into the process. Uh, we're well into that process. We have, um, you know, our investment memorandum and subscription agreements and all the stuff out in the market. Uh, we're anticipating having a first closing uh, before Christmas. Um, and the whole idea behind the fund is to give our members and you know other investors exposure to a broad portfolio of these types of companies, but on the basis of co-investing with angels who can help mentor and um, open doors and add value to our portfolio of investee companies. So how because I think, one, I think one of the great dilemmas, Michael, for micro VC early stage invest, uh, you know, managers is on the one hand, you need to build a very broad and diversified portfolio of assets in order to give a return. But on the other hand, you really want to try and add value and help each one of your portfolio companies, uh, which is incredibly hard to do with a lean investment management team. Right. So the way, we, the way we've addressed that is that the fund will always co-invest with one or more of our network, our expanded network of angels. So the company gets the benefit of, of real help from an industry expert through the network, um, but also gets the benefit of a larger amount of dedicated and allocated financial capital from the fund um, in order to properly close their round. Right. So this is, re this is a unique model. This is a unique model as well, right? When you say micro fund, though, is that a $10 million fund? Is it a $5 million? Is there a cap on the amount of money that you're trying to raise or...? Yeah, we'll close it at twenty million. Uh, twenty million will be the maximum fund size because we we really don't see the ability to deploy more than that uh, during the investment period, given the check sizes we intend to write. So, do you want to go into more detail about that? Is that a five-year fund, a seven-year fund, and how big do you think those checks actually end up being? 
Um, I'm, you know, to be candid, I'm really not sure how much I should say um, on a, um, a on a you know broadcast of this nature, Michael. But it's a pretty standard VC uh, vehicle. It's a Cayman uh, GPLP structure. It'll be capped at twenty million. It's an eight-year life fund. Okay. Um, you know, it has a pretty standard uh, VC profile. Got it. I mean, it looks like the the accumulated team actually looks like it's pretty strong. It just in, and it's interesting as well that you're going to co-invest with people. So it's almost like a it's almost like a, a syndicate in a way, right? So you've got a LPGP structure and syndicates on the side. I guess where people will invest if they feel like they've got some value to add. And you make a really good point too, right? Like finding that balance between being able to invest in a portfolio that's big enough to get that exposure that you need and to be optimized, but also to be small enough to be manageable by the people that are involved in the fund is a really important balance to strike, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think people can have the best of both worlds. Through the fund, they can um, you know, build a properly diversified, well-managed uh, <coughs> portfolio of assets that have been properly disciplined and that are monitored well and where where value is 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 optimized, and through the club they can make a much more limited number of bets based on more passion or industry knowledge or desire to help and mentor. So there's a very symbiotic relationship between the the club and the fund. And I would you know I would hesitate to I would you know be very quick to add. Although this may be a, a fairly unique structure here in Thailand, uh, we have not reinvented the wheel. You know, angel-led propositions, angel sidecar funds um, are relatively well-established phenomena in other markets like the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, I mean, very much so, right? I, when I said it was unique, I just meant unique in this in this um, in this region. In the United States, having a sidecar fund or an angel-based fund and a syndicate-style fund is, is like the norm. That's normal. I, I think that's absolutely right for all the reasons we've just discussed. Yeah, so and the way I, so I look at my own investing in, in, in a very particular way, right? And I'll kind of ask you if you can, if you can follow up and, and tell me how you look at it too, right? So when I invest in a company, I like to invest in a company that's a platform, right? I'm not particular about any individual vertical. Because I think it's hard to make a decision, even in a distributed portfolio, which particular vertical is going to win in any particular <clears throat> sector. Um, so when you know people ask me, and I was in a meeting yesterday, and somebody asked me, "What sector do you like to invest in?" and I kind of you know tilted my head to the side because I'm kind of indifferent. I'm curious how you feel about this, right? So when I invest in a company, I want to invest in a company that's going to be able to take advantage of an entire sort of horizontal business that ends up building a platform, right? And whether that's e-commerce facilitation, um, like the e-commerce business, which I am an investor in, it's it's hard for me to determine which one of the verticals that plugs into that's going to win, but I know that a bunch of them are. And I'm just wondering how you look at the market from an investment perspective, and maybe even just as an overall, like where the club looks like they're going to invest, not in sectors, because I think that that's, you're kind of indifferent to sector, but just in the kind of business. <coughs> Yes, Michael, we are very sector agnostic, and we can afford to be because obviously we have members and expertise across a broad range of, uh, of industries and verticals in our, um, in our club and in our, in our limited partnership base. Uh, in terms of what we look for, 
uh, we're always looking, and I think this is, you know, perhaps just semantics around your platform comment. Maybe, but we're always looking. For, we're always looking for businesses that have, you know, a, a significant, a, a sufficiently large uh, addressable market. Sure. Okay. Uh, because we know that capturing market share is hard. <laughs> And therefore, you know, you really need to be talking about a market either domestically or regionally, um, which is sufficiently large to make the thing um, interesting. And, you know, specifically, you know, we're probably looking for companies that ultimately can grow to a size where they're generating between 50 to 100 million dollars of, of revenue. All right. So because, because otherwise, if you're building a portfolio, the opportunity cost of diligence and all the rest of it is just too great if the if the overall opportunity uh, is not sufficiently large. So you know, a, a decent large size addressable market is very important to us. Some form of barrier to uh, entry or intellectual property is also uh, something we're looking for. Um, Good management experience, uh, some industry knowledge on, on the management team's part is always a plus, but not necessarily a, a prerequisite. Um, and ultimately, Michael, my belief is that fundamentally good businesses solve big problems. All right, so that's where the whole you know question starts: is is there really a problem? Is there a gap? Is there a demand? that this business is really meeting that as of yet has been unmet or not met in a in a way that uh, you know meets that particular demand or solves that particular problem right i mean i love this because i keep getting recurring themes when i'm talking to people and it kind of means that everybody's thinking in a way that's at least remotely similar i was on the phone with somebody yesterday and he's a software developer and he said he loves when his friends call him and say, look, I've got a problem. Because every time someone says that to him, he thinks that there's a software solution to it. And then he just tries to determine how big that problem is to see if it's actually worth working on. And it, it's kind of similar to what you're saying, I guess. Yeah, well, I, was, I, was, I won't take credit for this. I was watching an extremely interesting documentary on the BBC about how, you know, incredibly successful entrepreneurs. And they were asking, I think it was the chairman and founder of WePro in India, right. you know, what advice, what advice he would give to a young entrepreneur who wanted to make a billion dollars. <laughs> and his answer, was, his answer was, it's very simple, uh, solve a $10 billion problem and you'll make a billion dollars. <laughs> right. You know? and, and I think that's really the... the I, I ascribe very much to that philosophy, um, Michael. You know, I think uh, I think it's very easy with all of the technology that's around right now and all of the um, uh, language and tech speak and all the rest of it to forget that really, really successful companies uh, all solve problems in the real world that are experienced by real people. Yeah, I mean, I commonly say when I look for things to invest in, I'm trying to I'm trying to look for things that are not like pushing a rock up a hill, right? And as soon as they sort of move away from it, it comes down. You know, the story of Sisyphus, if I remember correctly, and because the companies that are literally like standing in the way of stuff and it just keeps moving in a way that helps them out, that's the kind of stuff. And again, from a platform perspective, that I want to invest in. 
And I just, I feel like you're saying the same thing. So, because if you're solving a problem that everybody's having, that is going to be a $10 billion business. You're going to end up making your billion dollars. And I, I see a lot of market gaps. That's just something else I like to look for as well, right? I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and I just try to ask them, what kind of market gap are you filling and how big do you think that gap is? And that's where a lot of my conversations start, right? And I saw, and you made a really good point earlier, right? When you talked about sort of an inflection point starting two years ago. If you look back to 2012, 13, and 14, there were a lot of people building what I would call sort of standalone gimmicky apps. And I think that that era actually out here has ended. I don't think anybody's trying to build more photo apps or build sort of social stuff as well. They're really trying to go out and solve particular problems. And if I look at the sort of team that you guys have accumulated and aggregated, a lot of people out there are already running specific businesses and they know what those market gaps are, whether they're logistic gaps, delivery gaps, software gaps. It's going to be an interesting to watch those gaps get filled, I think, over time. Yes, I think I think that's right. And I think that I think that more than more than that, you're slowly seeing a shift away from even businesses like um, you know some of these marketplace companies and aggregators. Uh, you know, you're seeing much more uh, vertical industry-specific uh, software as a service businesses launching. You're seeing some more hard science stuff coming out in health tech and ag tech. Um, I would say there's going to be a whole next uh, fintech and blockchain. You know, there's there's going to be a whole next wave of much more industry specific B two B type uh, startups. And I agree with you uh, that Bangkok Venture Club, with a broad array of industry experts who have been successful in a variety of verticals. Um, is quite well placed to take advantage of, of that next wave. Yeah, so you bring up a really good topic, actually, and, and the blockchain is something that's really close to me, something that I've done a lot of work on and something that I continue to, to research and study. In the context of the things in which you'd like to invest, even things that are outside of fintech, right, which is where most people see applications for this, I think you and I will, will agree that that's not the only application for a blockchain. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that impacting the growth of these B2B businesses, whether it's smart contracts or just, you know, these automated KPIs. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you see investing in those companies? Yeah, again, I, Michael, I'm not, I'm not an expert on blockchain or, um, you know, cryptocurrencies or any of this distributed ledger stuff. Um, but what I do see is that blockchain as a, as a technology um, is going to allow for a whole variety of new uh, business models to emerge as effectively the, the stakeholder chain of various businesses and the various constituent parts of any supply chain which is necessary for almost any industry move closer together all right, and become more and more integrated through uh, technology, and that allows for a whole bunch of um, you know relatively interesting new business models. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. Like I said, I've done a ton of work on this, and I see room. What you know, the the great thing about a distributed ledger and blockchain is it allows for sort of mass verification, right? Group verification, and that's going to help a lot in, in fraud. I mean, we see that. 
you know, whole bunches of products are made out there that are fraudulent and there's no way, you know, piracy, and there's a whole way to stop that, actually, I think, if you use the blockchain to do it. There are ways in insurance and in fintech. And the other thing that's really close to me is that, and I, I really want to get a better understanding and get a sort of larger conversation going about how people see the investment landscape changing as individual companies go out and raise money through ICOs. And we've seen some very successful companies do that even in our town, right? Whether it's Omise who's doing it and even Everex did this out of Hong Kong. I'm just curious if you have a view on that as well. Without caring for me, I don't really care about the back-end tech. I mean, I care about it, but I'm just wondering what the impact is on the investment landscape as well. Well, I think I think it makes being a... Um it makes being a venture capitalist harder, okay? Because it's another source of capital for early stage risk businesses. Um, but to be honest, before one even gets into ICOs, you need to think about the whole growth of, uh, of crowdfunding because that's another means for early stage companies to, to access, in, in some cases, zero equity capital if it's a contribution-based model, and in other cases, relatively cheap capital from a very large uh, investor base. So venture capital is competing with all sorts of new sources of early stage risk money, uh, which, which have been driven by technology change. So what that means is that you've got to be providing something more than just capital in order to compete, which, uh, again, candidly, Michael, is one of the reasons for the angel-led investment proposition, because the value to the companies and the portfolio investment companies, the, the portfolio companies we invest in, is not just our financial capital, but the human capital and the door opening and the database and the customer base and you know the assistance that we can give through our network of angels. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm on record as completely agreeing with that model, right? I mean, I think that companies that go out and sell themselves as, you know, we'll invest our money, and our money's different because we provide back-end services or even front-end services to you, connecting us, you know, connecting you to clients or connecting you to, you know, to potentially other businesses and even to follow-on investors. It's a great model, but I think it's hard to implement. And I think if you look at companies that sell themselves with that type of infrastructure, and I'll, you know, I'm on record as saying, like, the 500 model to me just seems to be investing in way too many companies to be able to actually provide that service. So what you guys are doing actually feels more highly optimized and kind of a, and I don't want you to comment on any particular venture capitalist. That That's my job to do that, right? And I have a view on it that's well known, but I think that what you guys are doing, it's more targeted and it's more optimized and that seems like a better business model, right? For me, when I invest alone, I try to do five companies a year because I don't feel like as an individual, I can I can actually help more than five companies in a year. But with your infrastructure, you should be able to do, you know, I'm picking a number, 20 companies a year and be able to, through the infrastructure that you have, be able to actually give them real value add. Yeah, would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, I mean, obviously I would, Michael. That's that's why we put the the structure together the way we did. And uh, you know, you're very you're you're close. You're very close on the numbers. We we expect to be able to invest in maybe twelve to fourteen companies a year, and you know, allocate and bring in the right angel for each for each of those businesses through our membership, and provide them you know not just financial support, but but more than that. Right, and so if and I think 
I, I think candidly that's happening in some ways in the market in any event. If you look at the, a lot of the seed stage fundings, which is the space that we play in over the last 12 to 18 months, um, very few of them have been funded by one entity. You know, this, this, this whole market is a market where what I once heard, heard called uh, co-opetition, you know, which is cooperation <laughs> between competitors, right. um, is, almost, is almost par for the course. And I think that'll continue for the foreseeable future. You know, I think we're I think we're a little bit uh, a little ways away from the stage where deals are become so proprietary that, that one fund wants to take the whole of any one round. Uh, because we all like the safety in numbers and the transferred confidence that comes through co investment. Yeah, I mean Look, even an IPO in a public market doesn't get done without a co-manager and a co-lead manager, right? So, you know, it's not like Goldman right. Sachs is out of doing all the IPOs. They bring Marilyn in in the old days, you know, Lehman and whoever else Deutsche Bank comes into. And that's, again, like you said, for risk mitigation. And I think regardless of <clears throat> how big the market gets, even if you look at the United States, you know, benchmark capital doesn't ever take the entire round. They're always investing with whether it's Anderson Horowitz or one of the other big or Sequoia, right? So th that happens everywhere in the world. And here it just happens at the seed stage. And in the U.S. it does too, whether it's a syndicate deal <clears throat> or just an angel deal that's separate. It always, there's always risk mitigation by having more than one investor in that market. And it's just, but, but again, the infrastructure that you guys have built to me is, is what makes it different, right? Because a whole bunch of different people come together and are able to provide real support to real companies. And that's a differentiating factor in my view. And that's kind of why I'm interested in the way you've, you've built that. That's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about it. I guess... And, yeah, uh, I mean, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead, Michael. No, I was just, I was just going to say, you know, we just did the maths. You know, if you build a portfolio of thirty companies and you want to have a uh, monthly meeting with each of them in order to provide some support and monitoring, exactly, you've got a meeting. You got a meeting every day, Michael. Right, <laughs> and you, you can't, you can't do that. All right, because no. there's other things to do in terms of portfolio management. Correct. So we have the best. We have the best of both worlds. We have a. We have a. At the moment, our, our membership constituent is about 300 people, all right? So we have access to 300 people, each one of whom it isn't a big deal to do one meeting a month, right, for one company that they support and they're interested in. And for us, we have all these clever people adding more value at those meetings, and then we can manage the reporting back and take care of portfolio management. So we think it's a very efficient structure for early stage investing in a market where the companies need help, Michael. Yeah, I mean, look, that's what I do on a daily basis. I completely understand the fact that these companies need help. So I would ask, have you guys started investing at all? In other words, as the team has come together, have you made any of these sort of seed stage investments yet? Or are you waiting until the fund closes to start doing that? Um, I've I've personally made a couple of angel investments over the last two years in the market, and I know my my colleagues have made their own angel investments. But we haven't invested we haven't invested as the fund yet. Uh, although we do have a couple of pipeline uh, transactions that we're looking at, which we would which we would execute shortly after our first closing. That's fantastic. So if, if investing begins sort of at the seed stage and the angel, angel stage of investing, it kind of ends at some sort of trade sale or exit or IPO, right? What's the view on that? I mean, for an eight-year fund, there's plenty of time to think about it. But that part of the market is also really immature as well. 
So I'm wondering how you see that developing. Because some you're gonna want to monetize, right, at some point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think monetization will come uh, from uh, both uh, the IPO and trade sale route, as you as you've discussed, Michael. I think in terms of IPOs, you might see more stuff uh, going domestically onto the Mai, or there's even some talk I understand of a. Of a more junior market that lends itself to more early stage listings. Um, but the other opportunity for us, I think, is because we're investing early, uh, there are also opportunities for liquidity events when either Series A or Series B comes in and they want to sort of mop up and clean up the, uh, the cap table. So uh, we'll, uh, we will be opportunistic about creating liquidity for our investors and monetizing the portfolio. But I think you're right. Um, if I had to guess, the, the great majority would actually be, come through uh, trade sales of, uh, of our portfolio companies to larger businesses, either regional or global businesses, looking to get um, market share in this part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the only thing I'll say is I think from an IPO perspective, even Japanese companies are listing on mothers, right, which isn't really an IPO. It's more just like a Series A or a Series B funding event for them as opposed to a true listing, you know, like when a company lists in the NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange or on the LSE. Yeah. But, but, and, I, and I do think, frankly, that, you know, listing on one of the regional exchanges out here, I just don't think it's going to happen over time, even in 10 years from now, because I just think historically – there's just not enough liquidity for those companies to trade. But you're right. From a trade sale perspective, whether it's Alibaba or Tencent or Naspers or even, you know, at some point Tokopedia is going to be going to start acquiring other companies in the region because they've just gotten so much money. Grab will do the same thing. Gojek will do the same thing as well. So I see that as, as more of an opportunity. But you're right. I think you have time to do it. And I'm always curious about how those, as you said, mopping up the cap tables, right? Whether that's in a series A or a series B, what does that secondary liquidity look like? And how does that happen here too? Because there are entire businesses in the US built around creating secondary liquidity, you know, allowing founders to cash out even before there's an event well, to, to do it, right? Well, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that, Michael, is when you talk about listings and liquidity events, you're, um, you're talking about more traditional exchanges, right? Um, my view is that, you know, within five years from now, uh, who's to say that smaller holdings of private equity portfolios won't be traded on some large um, exchange? You know, again, blockchain and all this other stuff is changing the way capital markets uh, operate. I never thought you'd see a world where there were exchanges for tokens based on cryptocurrency. <laughs> but if that's part if that's possible, then why isn't it possible that our uh, portfolio companies might be liquid on some new exchange that I haven't even thought of at this point? Right. Well, that's the point. I mean, all I'm, all I'm really doing when I'm having this conversation is socializing the market that's listening to this podcast for a business that I've been conceptualizing for at least the last five years, and that is the secondary market just for <laughs> just for startups. I mean, I've been spent so much time thinking about it, right? In other words... I, I think actually at some point, and you've made the point as well with the blockchain and other distributed ledger technologies, that stock exchanges as they exist today, right, as a as a place where there's sort of a guaranteed A side and B side or buy side and sell side, right, and the exchange guarantees that that event is going to occur, right, so they provide that service. I think at some point 
like the Tokyo Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, I think these things are going to go away and get replaced by purely electronic sort of blockchain-based, distributed ledger-based systems. And I want to build actually a secondary market trading for non-listed, whatever that means in the future. And you've already said that type of place where startup stuff can 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 trade. Because think about this, Robert. And no, like no one's actually talked about this that I've heard. One side of the market that's missing from the startup thing is being able to short it, right? Like there are plenty of companies out there that get invested at really high valuations that I absolutely hate. And there's no way for me to short that market. And I'd love to be able to create a security where, you know, pick a company. I don't care. You know, so XYZ startup that has a billion dollar valuation, which you know is going to go to zero because it's a BS business. I'd love to be able to short that. The only way to do it is the way you do it in the public market is by, you know, borrowing stock, paying a percentage for that borrow, and then selling it short. I'd love to be able to do that because that having both sides of liquidity in that market would create a valuation metric that's much more realistic as opposed to now where all you can do is buy. I'm, I'm a big um, fan of that idea as well, Michael, because if you ultimately could create liquidity in the underlying stocks, my job of raising capital would be so much easier because, Correct. of course, one of the... One of the huge reluctances of these early stage investors is to lock up their money for an eight-year um, time frame, okay, or or you know an average six and a half years or whatever the average ends up being for the uh, for the fund. So that type of liquidity would be really, really uh, extremely useful for fund managers all over the world. And if you look at the UK. Um, you know, the AIM market there has tried to do that yeah. by, building, by building publicly traded uh, fund structures that operate as venture capital trusts or right. otherwise. Right. Uh, the, problem, the problem is that the stock always trades at a massive liquidity discount because the underlying assets are illiquid. Correct. So you don't, you don't solve that problem. <laughs> of liquidity discount on NAV unless each one of the underlying portfolio assets is liquid in its own right. So, you know, let's take that conversation offline maybe, Michael, but I'm a, I'm a total believer in a secondary market for all sorts of these illiquid uh, private equity and VC uh, assets because it would, it would change the game. Yeah, I mean, I agree, and we can take it offline if you want, but this is a business idea that I've been building in my mind for like the last five years, and it comes out of watching listed markets trade and the benefits of being able to both buy securities and sell securities whether you own them or not. Anyway, and, and in a way, yeah. I think this is the perfect way to end this conversation. And look, I, every time I ask you a question, I'm asking because I am personally genuinely interested in what that answer is. It's not to sort of catch anybody doing something. It's just I'm so interested in the way this market works and in the way it's developing. And every time somebody new comes in, remember, I've been here for six years. You've been here for two years. It's not that different, but you have a different view on this than I do. And you know, and you have a different background too. So when I ask a question, it's more just like, what can I learn from this and what haven't I considered? And clearly, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you've considered that I haven't. And I think people will really appreciate the different point of view and the type of business that you're trying to build, particularly with the background and the experience that you have. So I really just want to say thank you for taking the time, Robert. Well, thank you for letting me share some of my views. And I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. You know, being, uh, being open to everybody's perspective is a very... Everybody has a different take on the situation here, all yeah. right? 
Um, but one thing that's very nice is that most of the people that I've met um, all seem to be very supportive of, of helping this ecosystem grow and really supporting the next generation of entrepreneur. So um, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of all of this. Yeah, I mean, and hopefully this will not be our last uh, conversation on this topic. But like I said, again, thank you very much for your time, Robert. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.